You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 6th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. Israel and Palestine. It is bad, but could it get worse? Will the last embassy to leave Kabul's diplomatic quarter turn out the lights? And does research into the underpinnings of human happiness ever conclude anything but the obvious? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Lynn O'Donnell and Yossi Meckelberg, will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll hear from the translator Lucy Jones about her long quest to find an English-language audience for an East German novelist. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Lynn O'Donnell, columnist for Foreign Policy magazine, and by Yossi Meckelberg, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and a lecturer in international relations at the University of Roehampton. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, I was going to talk to you by way of light introductory banter about impending travels. Uh, Lynn, you are going to Venice and you are going for the first time. How has it taken this long? <laughs> How indeed. <laughs> I mean, it took me way too long. That's why I'm, that's why I'm even more aghast when I meet people who haven't. Yeah, well, I, I've tended to go to places that are dirty and uncomfortable and where I get sick, and I just got a little bit sick of that. Well, all of those options are available in Venice, depending on where you stay. Well, and I'm going in winter, and I've been warned against that, but I just, you know, I'm from Melbourne. I don't care about what the weather is. It just <laughs> means more clothes or the sunglasses or both, so I'm off, yeah. Uh, well, we look forward to hearing more about that when you get back. It, it is it is excellent fun, but the, the obvious caveat is just have a torch when walking home, especially after one or two drinks. Or you may well end up, as Yossi nearly did, signalling that warning about walking too close to canals by nearly falling out of his chair. That is, that is, the, that is the ejector seat. Um, <laughs> Yossi, we, we, we reasonably, reasonably recently nearly concussed a Latvian MP with that chair. Um, not something we did on purpose. Uh, Yossi, you are, however, off to Israel. Um, how popular are you making yourself there at the moment? First, probably I should be very jealous of Lynn going to Venice. <laughs> uh, no, I think when you deal with politics, it's not a popul- popularity contest, so probably not very much. As we probably will discuss later, uh, it's a bit problematic at the moment out there. Uh, problematic to say the very least. And 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 as you suggested, uh, it can even get worse. So when you, uh, this is a government with very uh, thin skin. So if you criticize them, they, they take offense okay. so very quickly. Well, we will doubtless be giving them even further reason to be upset shortly. But first, <laughs> uh, to the latest on the earthquake, indeed, depending on how you count these things, earthquakes, which struck Turkey and Syria in the early hours of this morning. Across both countries, at least 2,300 people have been killed, thousands more injured, and many are still missing or trapped. Footage emerging from affected cities shows barely comprehensible destruction. Offers of assistance have come from all corners, including in suspension of usual semi-official mutual hostility, Greece, Russia, Ukraine, Iran and Israel. I'm joined with more on this by Samar Hadid, a head of advocacy for the Middle East and North Africa at the Norwegian Refugee Council. She joins me from Amman. Um, Samar, first of all, what sense are you getting of how bad this is from your people on the ground in Syria in particular? 
Well, our, our staff are sending in messages uh, every hour um, highlighting just the sheer devastation of this earthquake and the aftershocks uh, on the ground. Uh, hospitals are overrun uh, and been badly hit. Uh, people are still stuck um, under rubbles uh, and the rescue and search operation uh, has continued. But uh, now the areas uh, are being hit by harsh winter conditions and a devastating storm as well. So the conditions on the ground for our staff um, are very difficult and the uh, impact of this earthquake um, uh, in the short term uh, will devastate just the the overstrained infrastructure and, and badly hit services, but also in the long term. Well, you're getting towards what I wanted to ask about, and this is no in no way uh, intended to belittle the effect of this earthquake on Turkey. The images we are seeing from Turkey are just astonishing. Uh, but Turkey obviously has a greater capacity, being a relatively functional state, to deal with something like this than Syria does. Um, is Syria, after more than a decade of war, in any way equipped to deal with something like this? Absolutely not. Syria has been devastated by over a decade of conflict and its services, its systems, uh, its infrastructure uh, have uh, been badly hit over the years. And so there is no real coordination um, uh, that is in place um, from a national perspective. Uh, but this is why we need an international response and a UN coordinated effort that supports local relief efforts um, and local responders on the ground. Uh, NRC is scaling up its response as well as other humanitarian actors uh, in the sector. But we need a more coordinated uh, response to address the, the sheer size of needs on the ground. But what's your sense of how willing or able Syria's government is to cope with international assistance should it be offered? Well, the government itself has called for international assistance um, uh, most recently, uh, and I believe efforts are underway uh, to roll out a response with uh, within the UN as well. So we definitely need um, as much coordination as possible, but it also needs continued international funding. Um, Syria, as you mentioned, has been hit by conflict. Uh, it was already in the midst of a humanitarian crisis and economic crisis before this earthquake. And so this disaster will only worsen suffering uh, in the short term, but also the long term. And just finally, can you give us a sense of what it's like within an organisation like the Norwegian Refugee Council in the first hours after something like this? You will, I'm assuming, have heard about this earthquake uh, very early this morning in Amman. What has the rest of your day been like from there? We immediately checked on our staff. Um, they are our priority um, and their families um, and rolled out assessments as soon as possible uh, to evaluate the, the sheer size of the response and uh, the services and assistance that we need to uh, implement on the ground. Uh, we've started uh, rolling out um, and dispersing uh, winter kits, uh, food assistance, uh, and we'll be scaling up this response over the coming period.
Summer Hadid at the Norwegian Refugee Council in Amman. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to the Monocle Daily. Let's bring in our panel now, Lynn and Yossi. And the conflict between Israel and Palestine never entirely goes away. There are just times when it gets bad enough to be noticed elsewhere and now appears to be one of those. In the latest of a recent spate of nighttime operations inside the Palestinian territories by the Israel Defence Forces, at least five people have been killed in a raid on a location in the Akapat Jabir refugee camp near Jericho. Israeli sources claim that they were targeting a Hamas cell and Hamas has acknowledged that some of the dead were members of the organisation. But at least 37 Palestinians, civilians as well as militants, have been killed by Israeli forces in the West Bank so far this year. Um, Yossi, does anything in particular seem to be driving this latest uptick in violence or and not wishing to sound glib about it, is it just one of those sort of periods where it sometimes gets a little bit worse than it usually is? On the one hand, yes, you go through different peaks of, of, of violence. But if you look at the underlying conditions, they are getting worse and worse. Now, if you the most right-wing government in Israel history, mm. the, the, the PA and the president of the PA entering the, if I want to be diplomatic, the twilight of their of their uh, of of their presidency, the division between Fatah and Hamas, Gaza and the West Bank, the despair, the lack of hope of any political solution. So this is creeps into the conversation, into the operation. Then as a result of it, even if you look at the, the militancy that Israel is fighting against now, it's not as it used to be organized and directed either Hamas or Fatah of an organization. Those are more local organizations. And, and as a result of it, it's more difficult for Israel to deal with that. On the other hand, there is no any political solution in the horizon, and uh, Secretary of State Blinken visited last week with no great, uh, great solution or idea what how to move forward. So in this thing, I think it's heading towards something, something worse as a result, and probably pro, uh, prolonged conflict. I, I mean, I suspect that there is a very short answer to this question, but do you get the sense there is any fresh thinking, any willingness either in the new Israeli governed government or among, the, among those rather ossified structures of the rival Palestinian governments to try and move things constructively forward at all whatsoever? There is fresh thinking, but that's what worries me, because <laughs> their kind of fresh thinking is... is is, is worrying. If you look at the kind of people, we have to bear in mind, Netanyahu, though he won like six, the sixth elections and sixth Netanyahu government, is the weakest ever mm. because of his corruption trial. So he's basically, uh, maybe I should know, taken hostage by the other far-right mm. parties there. Now, they're very clear with their ideology. They want more settlements. They want the entrenchment of the occupation. They want to annex annex the West Bank, if possible, all of it. They would like the Palestinians either to concede defeat and accept the, the, the occupation and the annexation or just go. So under this, this is the first thinking right now. Just as, as an anecdote, you know, the, the new uh, Minister of National Security, Bengvir, Mm. In order to punish even prisoners, you know, to make their life, not that it's that nice to sit in Israeli prisoners, serve time there, he won't allow them to make their own pita bread because they have too much of a good time. And of course, this will create even more clash in prisons that terrifies the people that are in charge of 
of, of, of the prisons. This is the kind of thinking there. And as a result, if, if your question was about a political move that will bring to an end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, not in the near future. Well, Lynn, there is always keen international interest in this conflict, uh, much more than there is in most other conflicts around the world. And Yossi alluded to some of it in the recent uh, intervention of US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. But did you get the sense that Blinken is and the US administration are rather mailing it in uh, at this point where Israel-Palestine is concerned? They, they both know that, well, both Blinken and Biden are both aware that there is there, there's nothing going on here. I, yes, not only that, I think that they have also lost their own uh, credibility and heft in being able to deal with the situation as it prevails. And so as there are no ideas, as you say, fresh ideas are really taking it to the extreme of what already exists, getting worse, um, people, young people have nothing to look forward to. And so you create a situation where the bad feeds more bad. Mm. And young men especially who see themselves as having no jobs, no future, being pushed into the sea, as it were, um, having no other recourse but violence. And that's where you see 13-year-olds taking up guns and shooting in the direction of Israelis. I I think it's intractable and nobody seems to have any good, fresh ideas. And so even the um, two-state solution seems to be a a straw that nobody can grasp anymore. Well, on that subject, Yossi, it's Israel is far from, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but far from a unified country. It is one of the world's most fabulously rancorous democracies, in fact, and and we have seen huge protests uh, across Israel in recent weeks. But they, they seem exclusively preoccupied with the domestic, like, properly internal Israeli domestic agenda uh, of Benjamin Netanyahu. Does it strike you even among liberal Israelis, uh, people you might have thought of as, you know, why can't we all just get along two-state solution types, that Palestine is still any kind of live issue anymore? So I can tell you, I have some really robust conversation with friends of mine that define themselves as center-left. Forget about the right and the (laughs) center-right, but the center-left. And that's it when I write about the Palestinian issue and, and the response, oh, we have bigger issues to deal with democracy. And they actually don't, they fail to think and to see the link between having 55 years of depriving millions of people of their rights. And now it's basically crossover for the other side of the green line. They're completely blinded to the fact that there is a connection between forcing occupation, violence on on, on, on group of people, and now eventually it ends with the kind of leaders in power that want to change the democratic system almost to the way that they deal with, with the Palestinians in the occupied territories. And I think only when the, the more progressive forces will actually recognize that the compromising the democratic system in Israel has clear correlation with the occupation, then I think we start moving in the right direction. Just finally on this, though, Yossi, um, even if that change occurs, and even if there is, a, I guess, a centre-left social democratic government in Israel again that actually is interested in addressing the Palestinian issue, who do they address it with? Because at the moment they have a choice between the 
extremely unpleasant theocratic fascists of Hamas, <clears throat> whose big idea is still demolishing and extirpating the state of Israel, or they have Fatah on the West Bank, currently led by the senescent Mahmoud Abbas, who is now, what, 18 years into his four-year term as president? <laughs> yeah. Who do they talk to? Well, it's, it's not for the faith either. This is a long process now. Because from the Oslo, again, Oslo now, it's this year going to be 30 years old. Mm. So it's become almost irrelevant. So you need to rebuild this kind of relation, talk to the younger generation, need the international community on board. I think, as we learned from Oslo, things can change relatively quickly, but you need to do the right things. You need to go and mobilize the right elements within the society, engage with civil society. You see, the Hamas is in power, and those more extreme are in power because there is no solution. They are empowered by this, by the, the conditions which empower violence and and, and conflict. And then you need to, when, when, when the wheel is moving in one direction, you need just to stop it, think again, and, and change it the other direction. But as you say, the United States is out of sorts. The European Union is dealing with its own issue, Brexit here. And, and as a result of it, no one believes it's possible. I actually think when no one believes it's possible is the best time to think about new solution because no one expects you to have instant results. Well, let's move along and look at Lynn's former bailiwick of Afghanistan. And among the many who headed for the exits as the Taliban retook power in Afghanistan in the summer of 2021 were most of Kabul's diplomatic community, understandably concerned, re the swiftly deteriorating security environment. A few did stick it out or returned after a period calculating the risk from exile, but now both the Czech Republic and Saudi Arabia have shut up shop. The latter is especially significant since Saudi Arabia Arabia was, along with Pakistan and the UAE, one of only three governments which actually recognised the Taliban's rule of Afghanistan last time they were in charge, pre-9-11. Um, Lynn, the Taliban are trying to style the Saudi departure out. They're claiming that Saudi staff have just gone home for a bit of training. They'll be back. Um, are we buying that? Well, no. Um, and the reason I'm not buying it is because I was talking to a friend of mine in Islamabad on Saturday who said he'd run into the Saudi ambassador in the Marriott Hotel as he was checking in with 59 pieces of luggage. He had his <laughs> entire staff, including security detail from the embassy in um, Afghanistan with him and used the word evacuated. We have evacuated. So, you know, whatever the Taliban say, you know, please, let's not pretend they, they, are, they are truth tellers. Um, the uh, Qataris have downgraded. They've pulled about... Um, a dozen people out. The Turks have also downgraded. Uh, Emiratis, uh, I think, are pulling out in total. So there is some sort of uh, worry about uh, security in um, in Kabul at the moment, and I think it's probably linked to ISIS or the local franchise of it, IS, ISIS, IS Khorasan province. And there have been rumours that a truck full of explosives has been stopped at the outskirts of the capital. But as you know, journalism and proper reporting doesn't exist in Afghanistan anymore. So it's really very difficult to find out exactly what the situation is, other than talking to people there who say a lot of movement of Taliban 
gunmen around the city and a lot more searches of a lot more cars at the checkpoints. But something's going on. I don't think it's a coup yet, but I think that there is a serious challenge to security and that the these embassies are taking it seriously. I mean, there's every reason, of course, why embassies in Kabul would be taking it seriously. In recent months, we have seen uh, Russia and Pakistan's embassies and and China's all Mm. targeted. Um, Is this all being ascribed to Islamic State? And if it is, do they seem like the likeliest culprits? I'm, I don't buy the Islamic State uh, uh, blame game. I think that it's very easy for the Taliban to uh, point a finger at ISIS because it is on the basis of the existence in Afghanistan of an ISIS franchise that the Taliban keep the United States on side. They have an intelligence cooperation, you know, counterintelligence relationship with the United States. Um, I, a lot of the attacks that are claimed apparently by ISIS bear the hallmarks of Haqqani network attacks that we saw for 20 years during the war. Um, Haqqani network is an affiliate of Al-Qaeda. It's uh, headed by Siraj Haqqani, who's the Taliban interior minister and um, a leader of Al-Qaeda. And I think that there is um, a lot to be gained from blaming ISIS for attacks that ultimately serve the Taliban's purposes. Um, Yossi, assuming even that you could find the people willing to staff it and you could establish enough in the way of security infrastructure to protect the building, what's the value at the moment in having an embassy in Afghanistan? We should make it clear that even I think we're down now to about a dozen countries which do still have embassies in Kabul. None of them recognise the Taliban as the government of Afghanistan, however. Yeah, we're talking about 12 embassies. So, nobody knows much better than me the situation there. But at the end of the day, I think a bit like in Iraq. At the end of the day, when you, you have these embassies protecting themselves and they can really operate in a way that you expect embassies. It's not just on the level of ambassadorial level and we're talking to the, uh, to, to the foreign office, but you need diplomats that engage also with the society, with civil, with trade. And right now, Afghanistan is not in a, in, in a position or in a situation of any of this operation. So I think it's more, and if you look at the kind of embassies, there, most of them are actually embassies of countries from the region, Kyrgyzstan and uh, Uzbekistan and uh, Kazakhstan. So a lot of because they have bilateral relate dealing with the borders and, and other issues. But beyond this, probably it will have to wait for later. Uh, Lynn, what do you think? Are they, are they waiting for something, those countries, and hoping that at some point their willingness to stick it out will stand them in good stead with a, a perhaps more tractable regime in Afghanistan? Well, I think that countries that supported the Taliban's return to power, like Pakistan, China, Russia, Iran, Turkey to a lesser extent, um, are dealing with the Taliban on a diplomatic level uh, as if, the, you know, mm. they do have recognition. But nobody, I don't think, is going to come out and, and recognise them formally before the United States does. Uh, but for those countries that are friends of the Taliban, um, being there is, is as good as diplomatic recognition for them. Um, they are doing trade. The Chinese are signing deals. The Russians are selling them wheat and oil. Uzbekistan is selling them electricity. So these relationships do go on because they do um, 
if not formally, recognise that the Taliban are in control and they're the ones to be doing business with. Just finally on this, Linda, I want to go back to something you were saying earlier, that this, this wasn't a coup or anything, but something was going on. I mean, are we still making a mistake when we discuss the Taliban as a as a monolith? Because it was never quite that straightforward, was it? This is a, a sack full of ferrets. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, and nasty ferrets at that. Um, I think that what we are seeing is um, a very clever uh, a projection by various leaders of the Taliban of a, um, a, a divide in ideological approach and I don't buy that either. I don't buy a lot of what comes out of the Taliban. But I, I do think that um, Siraj Haqqani is very ambitious and would like to be caliph and that his big rival for that is the current supreme leader out of whose mouth um, all pronouncements mm. come. Um, and everybody follows them. It's Haibatullah um, Alkanzada, the supreme leader, who is saying girls can't go to school. That's Taliban ideology. And I don't believe that there is a breakdown in, in view I think that when somebody like Siraj or Mullah Omar's son, Yaqub, says, you know, um, I would really like girls to be able to go to school, but the big man says, no, I don't believe that. I think it's just for the consumption of UN officials, for instance, who are beating a path to their door to justify their own existence and come away saying, well, the Taliban told me that, you know, girls are going to be able to go to school, we just have to be patient. You know, they're not. That's Taliban ideology. When the time comes, we might see some um, inter-factional uh, fighting, but at the at the moment, I think they're all pretty much on the same page. Lynn O'Donnell and Yossi Meckelberg, thank you both for the moment. We will be back with more shortly. Have you got your hands on our sister magazine, Confect, yet? Well, you might also be interested in Confect Corner. Our podcast accompaniment, hosted by me, Sophie Grove, with Julian Tobias and Marcella Palak between London and Zurich. Join us each month for stories on travel, fashion and craft, and drinking and dining across Europe and beyond. Episode one is available now, where we discuss the art of scent, celebrate the sanctuary of the bathroom and meet the designers Paula Gabez and Kazu Hugler. I'm not interested in producing many pieces of one design. I'm always interested in the person who is going to wear it. Subscribe at confectmagazine.com or wherever you download your podcasts. You're listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Lynn O'Donnell and Yossi Meckelberg. And let us now attempt the deeply counterintuitive manoeuvre of considering the bases for human happiness on a Monday. Robert Waldinger, the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, believes that he and his fellow boffins have figured it out. And it turns out to be more or less exactly what you'd expect, i.e. having a few quid in the bank, something interesting to do with our days and a network of people whose company we find agreeable. Possibly more interesting. Interestingly, they claim to be finding increasingly solid evidence of a correlation between happiness and good health. Uh, Yossi, does any of that strike you as news? No. (laughs) (laughs) I I think the question, I was thinking about the methodology of of when you come and ask people, are you happy? Initially, people don't even ask you. It's like you say, are you relaxed? No, I'm not when you ask me to do that. And the the same goes for happiness. 
it's a question how you define what makes you happy. And, and again, I think there is some from what I read about what they are saying. It's a kind of the happiness about something monumental that people make them immediately happy when something happens. They see something nice, been to the museum and saw a nice painting. Their football team won a game, it makes them happy. And something which is more long-term, that mm. makes you, you know, about relationship, about part of it is how you feel about yourself. So there's something... But is it really new? And because this is their data is going 80 years now. No, I think it's a reflection of us as human beings, complex and sometimes happy and sometimes not. Yeah, I mean, Lynn, I would be surprised, or I would have been surprised if they'd said the secret, it turns out, is to be poor, unhealthy and downtrodden. <laughs> then it would be headline news. <laughs> um, but, but do you yourself have any working definition of what actually constitutes happiness? Oh, well, I don't really think that that's a fair question because, as Yossi said, it's, you know, it can be um, determining from people's tweets um, uh, whether they're lying on a beach or standing in the rain waiting for a bus that never comes, that that's how you decide that they're happy or unhappy. That's a no-brainer, right? Mm. Um, and um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy on a beach and I have been very unhappy waiting in the rain for a bus that doesn't come and I have had that experience. But I, I just think that, um, yeah, it's it's... There has it's lineal. There has to be a line from, you know, over the course of time. What's my what are my contentment levels, and what will I base that on? And and I I think yeah, it's it's too obvious. And I guess overall, I can say I'm a happy person. Um, Yossi, one of the things that they do float, uh, the Harvard Institute for Studying the Whatever It Is, the Harvard Study of Adult Development, he said, referring to that page of the script, um, is that they are concerned, uh, particularly in light of the last couple of years, of something of what they call a loneliness epidemic. And and they're trying to say that people uh, need to embrace the risk of interacting with other human beings rather than just staying in and watching something agreeable on television. Because their point is that humans have, I think, probably a proclivity towards uh, predictability and path of least resistance, um, and that's the easier thing to do. And they're trying to they're trying to get across, I think, the very Calvinist idea that um, that you must put effort in to get reward. But is there an argument that no, most places where there's other people are awful, and staying in by yourself is usually really pleasant? And some people said, oh, I need my me time because I need to be on myself because otherwise I'm not happy because I'm surrounded by too many people. Actually, I didn't, I, I... In, in, in my previous life, I brought a group of psychotherapists into my negotiation classes. And one of them, <laughs> the late uh, Freddy Strasser, wonderful man, and, and he, one of his latest, uh, his last works was about emotions and paradoxes. And, mm-hmm. he, and he asked me, how many emotions do you have? And, so, and I actually said, kind of half laughing, I'm happy or unhappy? And said, no, you, we have 200 emotions. And we are God, full that of, sounds exhausting. I know. And then he kind of outlined them. And then kind of we are full of paradoxes. As Lynn says, sometimes at the same moment we can be happy about something and unhappy about something else. And, and this is part of who we are. Now, about loneliness, we saw it during COVID. People were really lonely and unhappy. But it's also confined with other issues. Some of those who were lonely were also suffering from food insecurity. Mm-hmm. 
So there, there were other elements that those who, for instance, lived in very comfortable condition, suffered less from this loneliness than, than others. So you need to put, we as human beings, we are full package. So in this sense, all of them put together what makes us happy. The other thing is to assume that all of us are happy from the same things. Well, it's a bit presumptuous. This, this was what I thought, and this was what I was trying to boil it down, Lynn, to some sort of, is there some kind of thing that covers all bases? Thinking of myself as somebody, I've certainly been unhappy on beaches, which I, I, I find just incredibly tedious <laughs> it's places. It's a sand thing, isn't it? Well, I don't have anything against sand. It's just like, what, what, depending what, on where it is. What, what are we all doing here? Yeah. Um, I, I, can I argue that I've been perfectly happy waiting for an interminably delayed bus? Not no, that's just annoying. No one enjoys that. But, I mean, you know, if you're not in a tearing hurry and you've got something to read, it's basically okay. Is there an argument that what the Harvard boffins and others are grasping for is just the idea of an absence of worry? Does that do as a definition of happiness? Well, if you don't have to worry about money or, or heat or food... Mm. Or clothing. That's if a start. Those, those very basic things. But does that equal happiness or does it equal contentment? I think they're two different things. And I can be content knowing that I don't have to worry about those very basic things, but then still in search of, of happiness. And I think that, you know, there is also we're facing a modern condition where many people believe that happiness is a human right. And I, I just I don't know what what is meant by happiness. I've been to Bhutan where they have that, that um, GD. Uh, oh, the, yeah, the, uh, the like a happiness equivalent of GDP. Yeah, that's I forget right. the term, but yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. And that's exactly what it is. And I and I think that they, too, are aiming more for contentment and the fulfillment of need so uh, the lack of worry and stress about need than true happiness see th th this is why one of my favorite phrases in the english language is that that key line uh, yossi from the u.s declaration of independence the that pursuit. they want life liberty and the pursuit, pursuit of, of happiness yeah. you can have a crack at it we're not promising you anything <laughs> but you can have a go at it but is, is there something to that, the idea that the opportunity for pursuing happiness is actually as near as makes no odds to the definition of happiness? See, we're doing this Harvard boffin's got job for him here. In a way, it's like the famous uh, poem about Ethica. It's not the destination. It's actually the pursuit, the journey of that. So it's the same. What you learn on the way of the pursuit of happiness is what the way of the, your destination. And if we think that as human beings, our destiny is to be happy, what we learn on the way. Well, just finally then, uh, because it does pertain to place, a final meditation on happiness from you both. Uh, another, frankly, incomprehensible study I was reading earlier was <laughs> making some associate. It studied people reactions on social media for all the use that actually is as a scientific measure of anything, I suspect little, uh, but portions of London and San Francisco and whether or not they were conducive to happiness. So, Lynn, I'll ask you first of all, are there any places, not necessarily in London, anywhere you like that make you notably happy if you're just in them? If I'm just in them? Yeah, you know, just, just being there just, just being. makes you happier. 
Uh, well, I think fairly obvious stuff in a park on a sunny day, mm-hmm. um, a picnic on the beach. I know you don't like beaches. We'll go back to that. Um, just the picnic. Yeah, just the picnic. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really love sitting around having um, dinner and wine with friends and good chat and music on in the background. You know, that makes me happy. Um, and, and that and, can and, be and, anywhere. And Venice might. Venice probably will. Uh, <laughs> and, and Yossi? I think one thing is the company who I'm with, so it can be anywhere in the world as long as the company is good. And I find myself that, you know, it depends on my mood. Mm. As if I feel in different places that not obviously, talking about near Afghanistan, I, I spent a month teaching in Uzbekistan in a very kind of Soviet Union style flat for a month. And I was very happy. I don't know the change of scenery, being with different people in different culture. I was and, very happy. And, and knowing that you'd get to go home after a month as well. As well. Yossi and Lynn O'Donnell, thank you very much for joining us. Finally on today's show, a 1963 East German novel about a brother and sister divided by their views on communism has been published in English for the first time. Siblings by Bridget Reimann was largely based on the author's own life as an idealistic young woman in a new socialist state, the GDR. She died in 1973, but Berlin based translator Lucy Jones has been working for years to find a publisher for the English version of Siblings. She sat down with Monocle's Lillian Fawcett, who asked Lucy what it is about Ryman's writing that so appeals to her. I've been asked this quite a lot, and I keep coming back to the idea that it's her voice. It wasn't so much that I was interested in the history first, but I was interested in how she described the story set in this particular time and her voice is very emotional, very passionate. She puts you in a perspective of being there as if you're actually in, inside the events that are taking place. Brigitte Ryman seems like a fascinating character as well. She died aged 39 in 1973. And having said she wanted to live 30 wild years instead of 70 well-behaved ones. Tell us a bit more about what kind of person she was. Yeah. So she was, I think she was 21 when she had her first book published and she'd always been writing at school. She'd written short stories and she studied drama for a while. Then she broke off her study and she became a teacher. She married um, very young. She married somebody who wasn't her intellectual equal and he turned out to be also quite domestically abusive towards her. So she had a lot packed into her first few years of life and then when she became successful, I think her first book was Die Frau am Pranger, which means The Woman in the Pillory, which is a, a love story between a German woman and a Russian station soldier. So this was a big success for her. And what happened was her, her life blossomed and she had all this attention and she just used, and I don't want to say used, but she just uh, enjoyed every moment of it. And I think she kind of... was open to all kinds of experiences that that brought. Let's talk a bit about the book now. It follows East German siblings, brother and sister Elizabeth and Yuli. And Yuli announces at the start of the book that he wants to defect to West Germany. They Mm -hmm. they live in East Germany. And it's based on Brigitte Reimann's real life, isn't it? And she believed in this kind of communist socialist mission. But I think in, in the book... She's also quite honest about the realities of living in in, a, in communist East Germany. Um, you know, she's not a party member, neither is Yuli, but she kind of gets in trouble where she works because she criticises an, an old party member. 
That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So it very closely follows her life. It's you might even call autofiction, I'd say. And in that moment that she was writing, uh, you know, fascism had just uh, destroyed Germany and much of the world. And she was very young and idealistic and wanted to have um, a new start in her country. And as a young person, she got behind this idea of socialism. She was very critical of her parents and her parents' generation. And therefore, defecting to the West was seen as a a, a selling out to consumerism, capitalism. And that that was pretty much the way the world was divided in, uh, you know, during the Cold War. There was no real grey zone because there was a wall and there was a border and uh, you were seen as a traitor if you, if you if you allowed those values to to seep into your life and i think that that's hard now for us to appreciate because we know what happened in the gdr and in many cases the state was not uh, it didn't act social in a socialistic manner it was a totalitarian state that surveyed its citizens but she didn't actually live to see the very desperate end of the gdr she lived as a young person at the beginning, and she really believed in it. She believed the the project, as as it was called in the GDR. The project was to create equal wealth, equal conditions for education, equal pay for women in childcare. All of these things that are not you you, you know they're they're still if you like they still had there still hasn't been a state that's really fully embraced all of those values and managed to put them into practice the book as i mentioned was written nearly 60 years ago now about a state that no longer exists what can it offer contemporary readers yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Stevenage, which is a new town about 20 minutes from here up the A1. It was a place that was built for young families to have children with better, cleaner air outside of London after the war. This was a utopia. You know, my parents moved there thinking, oh, there's green spaces, we can buy our own house and everything. And actually what I would say from my experience of growing up in Stevenage, it was really great when I was a small kid, but as soon as you get to a certain age, you realise there's not really a soul, there's nothing kind of holding people together apart from the fact that it's cheap, affordable housing and clean air. And I think she makes so many similar points in this book. She's in this project that is, to all intents and purposes, it's supposed to be a utopia. But really... Uh, the question is, what makes a community? How do people function when they've been placed in a man-made space, which is slabs of concrete, you know, everything looks the same? How how do people function? What do we need for community? Do we need just clean, affordable housing and fresh air? Or do we, do we need something like an organic sense of who we are, where we come from, meeting places for young children and for young people and so on? I think that that's what I took from it, is that... It resonated with me very strongly. This really gets old, this subject. If you look mm. at um, housing projects in different cities in Britain, you know, these, these are all really valid questions still that mm. you can ask. I want to talk about the translation as well. Yeah. Where do you begin with translating a, a novel or, or a nonfiction as well? Because yeah. it's obviously not just about knowing yeah. the English word or the German word. You're also trying to translate a kind of particular writing style, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you really have to see it like uh, like writing. So you have to do several drafts before it gets to the place that you want it to be in. And I've always looked for similar voices in, in English to try and get myself attuned 
And it was really quite difficult to find anybody with her voice, although it's it's very modern. So I, I found footage online. There was the uh, East German film company, the DIFA, who made documentaries in, in East German times. And she's on a clip. She's, she's talking. She's very, very shy. She's hmm. very sweet. And I heard her voice and I thought, oh, okay, so now I know what she sounds like. And I tried to conjure that up in my mind when I was doing the translation. So that or going to going to the places where she lived and worked and seeing the the atmosphere. So kind of being in the place, it was quite important for me. Just finally, as you mentioned, you translated books by Ryman in the past. Yeah. What's next on your list? What would you like to see next translated into English? Well... I mean, there is talk of her larger novel being, her mag- Opus Magnus being translated, which is Francisca Linkerhand. And this is almost like an expanded version of Geschwister. It's it, the same themes are looked at, but it's far more comprehensive. It's, a, it's an older voice, a more mature voice. And it also dips into the end of the war a bit more, I think, thoroughly and interestingly I find it very interesting her voice again is sort of swooping around in the first person third person she changes perspective she does inner monologues it, it's incredible I don't, it's, it's really like a kind of incredible camera that's going everywhere and I would love to translate that that would be great that was Lucy Jones speaking to Lillian Fawcett. Siblings is published by Penguin and is available now. Do also listen for the full interview with Lucy on an upcoming episode of the Monocle Weekly, which you can find on our website. That is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Yossi Meckelberg and Lynn O'Donnell. Thanks also to Samar Hadid at the top of the show. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamintuan. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nickel. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.